Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Good to see everyone. Hopefully you are having a, a great week. <clears throat> uh, hopefully also you have found the notes there on your table. Um, this uh, portion that we're going to be looking at tonight is um, about Sarah's life. K.I. Sarah. Uh, the life of Sarah. It starts in Genesis 23.1. Uh, it'll take us uh, through a good portion there of Genesis 25. Um, we're going to actually backtrack a little bit tonight. Remember last week talk, we talked about uh, Abraham and offering up Isaac and how that was such a cataclysmic event in their lives. <clears throat> We're going to pick up on that a little bit and chase a few things down uh, this evening uh, because it's real important that we read our Bible in what? Read it in context. But there's a number of things said in this portion that if you don't have a geographical idea of where they're talking about, you really miss out on it. And so I've got a number of maps that we're actually going to look at tonight because it's the only way to truly understand, I believe, what is uh, what really is happening? So um, we're going to start here in Genesis 23, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pray together. It says in verse 1, it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abram rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not only honor the reading of your word, but the study of your word. You would cause it to come to life for us. And Heavenly Father, we would be challenged to walk closer to you. We would be challenged to strive to bring glory and honor to your name. And Heavenly Father, that we would strive to glorify you even if we should have to walk alone. And we pray all this in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so... Here it says that Sarah lived to be 127 years old, and she dies. But what's interesting in this story is that it names where she died. There's nothing in our Bibles by accident. You're going to see some things. I hope we're going to see some things tonight that you're going to go, what? No way. Um, Sometimes you'll see where, and we'll get to it in a second, where you think, well, here's some side information. I don't even know why that's in, our, in my Bible. And you're going to see tonight why God had Moses write this down. This is one of those things about reading in context you have to remember. God is having Moses write this stuff down because it's teaching the people of Israel and subsequently us what happened. What is the history of mankind and God working with mankind through Israel, through Yeshua, to today? And, and what is he doing? So here it says that 
Sarah dies, and she dies at this place. It's commonly known today as Hebron. And it says that Abram rose up, and he went to mourn for her. The shortcut to this story, Abram's not living with Sarah. He has to travel there to mourn for her. And then he tells the Hittites, look, I'm a sojourner here, a foreigner among you. I need you to sell me some land so I can bury Sarah. So if you jump down to the bottom of the page here where we pick up at verse 14, we'll get to this other stuff here in just a second. So Abram has this conversation with this guy named Ephron. And Abram's like, I want you to sell me this land. Ephron's like, no, I don't want to say the land. I'll just give you the land. Abram's like, no, you're not going to give me the land. I need you to sell it to me. In other words, he's like, all this has to be legit. And I don't want this coming back later. This needs to be legit. Ephron's like, no, 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 I'll just sell it to you. And Abram's like, no, you're going to sell me the land. We're picking up here with that story here in verse 14. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me or you and me? Bury your dead. Abram listened to Ephron, and Abram weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that is in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Remember we talked about Lot sitting in the gate? Those that are going in and out of the gate. It was the area where legal transactions would take place. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abram as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, here's one thing I want you to try to wrap your brain around, if you will. They go back and forth. Ephron is really trying to play Abraham. Abraham's not going to have any of it. He's like, no, this is going to have to be a legitimate legal transaction here. So Ephron goes, hey, what's this field between me and you at 400 shekels? I mean, shekels of silver. What you need to understand is that's probably five to ten times the amount that that land was worth. It is an exorbitant amount of money for an empty field. It was crazy, in other words. When you, when you map out the worth and what this would have been worth at the time, going all the way back, not to mention what it would be valued now. I didn't chase all that down. It's not, it's irrelevant. All you need to understand is that this is an extremely, this is a ripoff um, times 10, if you will. But what does Abram do? No problem. Here you go. 
What you also need to remember, that means Abram basically took a vast amount of money with him there. Okay? So you have to ask yourself, now here's one question. So why would Abraham agree to do this? There's no mention in here at all that Abraham haggles with him at all over the price. Not a bit. Even though he knows Ephron is ripping him off big time, taking him to the cleaners and then some. Abraham goes, okay, here, you can have it. Now, what I'm about to tell you is this is my opinion as to why he did it. Abraham is grieving sorely over Sarah's death. I think it's even possible, possible that maybe he even feels at some level some guilt over her dying because of the strain of the offering up of Isaac. Because they're not living together. And I'm going to show you how we can tell that easily. But the only way you can figure this out is you got to look at a map. It's the only way to know. And that's why it's telling us this is where she died. We're going to find out where was Abraham living. And then we're also going to find out, well, where was Isaac living? None of them in the same place. Yeah. So what I want you to do, uh, Bam, if you bring up that first map of Hebron and Beersheba. This is Beersheba down here at the bottom of this map. And this is where Abraham is living. It says in our reading from last week, we'll get to this in a second, that when he leaves from offering up Isaac on the altar, that he comes back with the uh, men that are with him. It doesn't say with Isaac. And they go back to Beersheba. And it says, and Abraham dwelt, lived there in Beersheba. This is Hebron. This is where Sarah is living and where she dies at the age of 127 years old. So um, turn the page with me, will you, to page two. This is where we're going to pick up. We have to go back a little bit to look at these verses. This is from our last week's reading where you see in Genesis twenty-two nineteen. So Abraham returned with his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, uh, and Abram lived in Beersheba. doesn't say Abram, Sarah, and Isaac, Abram and everybody. It just says Abram lived in Beersheba. So you get down to verse, if you go back to verse 2, and this is where all this becomes extremely interesting. In verse 2 of Genesis 22, once again, this is from last week, he says, God tells him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Hmm. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So where is this area of Mount Moriah? Most of us here should know, well, that's Jerusalem, right? But how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us. So in other words, you don't have to just go, I guess, or that's what they're saying, so I'm just going to agree with it. Um, 
Let's look at what the Bible says. Amen? So you look at 2 Chronicles 3.1, and this it says, uh, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. So what would that be talking about? The temple, the first temple. So Solomon began to build the house of the Lord where? In Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That's a whole other story. But the part I want you to see here and maybe highlight, once again, these notes are for you to take and highlight or highlight it in your Bible. Please don't lose them. This becomes important. Um, so it's in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. You go to Psalm 24, verse 3. It says, Who does go up to the mountain of Yahovah, and who does stand in his set-apart place? What in the world could King David, if he's writing this, could he be referring to? He's talking about God's special place on God's mountain, which he already knows that that's in Jerusalem. You go to Isaiah 2, verse 3. It says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Everybody knows that, right? Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, or go up to the mountain of Yehovah, to the house of the Elohim, to the house of God, or the God of Yaakov, Jacob, and let him teach us his ways, and let us walk in his paths, why? Because out of Zion, out of Zion, comes forth the Torah, the teaching, and the word of Yahovah from where? Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Where is it coming from? It's coming from Mount Moriah, the mountain of God there in Jerusalem. You go to Isaiah 30, verse 29. Let the song be to you as in the night set apart for a festival and gladness of heart as... He who is going with the flute to come to the mountain of Yehovah to the rock of Israel. Here it's saying uh, that let this song be to you like one who is going to the mountain of God there in Israel for the feasts. The three pilgrimage feasts is what this is talking about, which everyone would go where? To Jerusalem, this mountain of God. You look at Zechariah 8, verse 3. Thus says Yehovah, I shall return to Zion, Zion, and I shall dwell in the midst of, what? Yerushalayim. In other words, he's going to paint, there's no way to mistake where he's talking about. He goes, I'm going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, is going to be called what? It will be called the city of truth and the Mountain of Yahovah of hosts, the set-apart mountain. So this mountain is in Moriah, and it's the mountain where Abraham offers up Isaac. Can you pull up this next map of uh, Beersheba and Jerusalem? So this is what I want you to see. You... The only way to understand what's happening is you have to look at a map. In other words, you got to know, are we talking about Houston, Austin, or Dallas? It's the equivalent of going from Houston to Dallas. You got to go past one way or another. What? Austin. You got to go past it somehow. 
So Abram, Abraham is living in Beersheba. He travels all the way to Moriah, the land of Moriah, the mountains of Moriah, which we, we know is in Jerusalem. And he has to go past Hebron. It says, when we studied it last week, <clears throat> that when, Ab- when God tells Abram to do this, he cuts the wood, he divides the wood, all this, he travels. It takes three days. After three days, he sees Mount Moriah from a distance and says, I and the, the lad, my son, we're going to go. Everybody else stay here. We'll come back. Now, what we don't know is how far was he? Was he at Hebron? Was he a little bit farther? Well, from Hebron to Jerusalem is only 18 miles. Is it possible that from there he could see the mountains from there? Yeah, it's possible. Pretty easy, actually. Um, he he would, be able, would be able to see it. <clears throat> so then here comes the question. How did Sarah end up here? Because you're not told in Scripture, but we're told that this is where she dies. And we're told that this is where Abram comes back to to live. And he has to go here to mourn for her and to buy the land to bury her. <clears throat> How did she get there? Well, do you think it's possible that Abram told, Abraham told her what was about to happen? What he was doing. Sure he did. I think. Now, we don't know. We're not told this in Scripture. But we do know what we're looking at here is that they're not living together when this happens. Um, He goes there. He comes back here. He's got to pass this area twice. Could it be that she either overheard or she knew something was up? We don't know. What we do know is that she ended up there. Why there? That's the, that's the question. In other words, when you're reading your Bible, you kind of have to what? You kind of have to be the detective. You got to kind of read between the lines a little bit every now and then go, uh, what's going on here? Uh, <coughs> there's not enough room to give us every single detail of every single event. Everybody understands that, right? That part's not important. <coughs> what we do know is that that's where she is. That's where she dies. How'd she get there? Well, we can speculate. I think either Abraham told her or she figured it out. She was either traveling with them or following behind. That's my only guess as to how she could end up there. And this this can be the only event that would have troubled her so much that now she's not living with him. So another thing to, uh, to get to now, This is, again, in last week's reading, but I want you to see something because just so that you understand that God put a clue in here to help us understand what happened. In last week's reading, it talks about that, you know, Abraham, you know, he he goes back and his relatives go, oh, yeah, by the way, you've got some relatives that also had kids at an old age. And here's their names. It's in last week's reading. It's in 
Genesis 22, verse 24. And it says, And moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Machah. And everybody goes, okay. And that's got to do with what? Because we're not really going to run into a lot of these people again. Here it is in your Bible. So what's so important about that? Well, I put it for you down here. I just went, I read this somewhere and I went, no way. Are you kidding me? So I went and looked it up myself to personally make sure that what I was reading was true. I found it right there in, in Strong's Lexicon. And here's the meaning of the names of these people. Ruma, and, this, and it's in order. Ruma means elevated. Teba means a slaughter. Gaham means a burning. Takash can mean perhaps an animal yielding the skin, even of a badger, dugong, which is like a sea lion, or dolphin, or even what? A sheep. And Makah means oppression or crushed. But when you connect it with the Makathites, it literally means she was or has crushed or pressed. It's a picture of a sacrifice that causes a woman crushed. Am I the only one that went, are you kidding me? Is that not incredible? It's like God's telling them, like, I'm just giving you a clue here as to what's going on. And, he, and watch this. He's using relatives that aren't there with them and even influencing them to name their kids certain things that's going to paint a picture for what's happening. Gives me goosebumps from top to bottom. Our God is in control of everything. I'm telling you. He loves you and he is painting a picture and he's drawing us back to him. And he's out of all the people on the face of the earth of all eternity. He called me. He called you to be in love with him. Not a, I'm not looking at a person in this room that quote-unquote deserves it because of anything we've done. Because we're so smart, we're so good-looking, we're so perfect, we're so holy and righteous. Anybody here mess up at least once today? <laughs> uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? And, and he's, he's mapping all this stuff together. Turn the page with me. Now, in the story that Susan went over about Rebecca, that's found in Genesis 24, and it's basically verses 1 through 61, pretty much, <clears throat> where Abram has, Abraham has his uh, eldest servant, Eleazar, who he was going to give as his inheritance. When he told God, I don't have an offspring, I've got Eleazar, he's my only offspring, God goes, no, you're going to have a, your own son. That's who he has go to find his real son, a wife. And he sends him to get a wife. But you have to understand 
where. This is interesting. So if you'll pull up the next map, of the, this is what's called the Fertile Crescent. You ever heard this before? You ever heard, you know, talked about the Fertile Crescent? And most people believe that it was in the Fertile Crescent where the Garden of Eden originally was, which is fine. But you have to kind of see it this way to kind of start to understand what's happening. So over here, you've got Egypt, you got the land of Canaan, and then you got Mesopotamia. Uh, this is why it's called this Fertile Crescent, because it's this big arch, and everything out here is pretty much desert area. Pull up the next one, will you? So this next map I've got here for you helps you see this Fertile Crescent with the current nations on it. So you've got Egypt, the Nile. This is uh, Jordan, this area like right in here. This area here that's on this map is called Canaan. That's uh, where Israel is. Uh, the Gaza Strip is like right here, this little bitty place where all the riots are going on now. You've got, uh, this is all Saudi Arabia. You got Iraq. You got Iran. Uh, you got Turkey uh, up here. Does, is that, and then you got, you know, Assyria. You got Syria where all that has been going on for so long, uh, which borders, it, because it kind of comes down this way, uh, Israel. So that kind of helps you see what's going on. And I wanted you to understand that here's Israel and Jerusalem and uh, Beersheba and all that that's going on right here. Mesopotamia is up here in this area. If you pull up that next map. This is the map of Abraham's travels because he comes from where? Ur of the Chaldeans. He travels up through Mesopotamia and stops in Haran where his father dies. That's where he leaves everything behind finally and he comes down. The first place he ends up is in Shechem that's a whole other thing. And he comes down in this area. He goes to Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. And he ends up down here in Beersheba. You got this, this traveling going back and forth this way a little bit. But I want you to see that this is where he came from. And this is where he is now located. Does, does that make sense? You have to be able to see it in this, with, with this understanding. Now, if you'll pull up the next map. Okay, so that's Haran way up there in the Mesopotamian area. This is Israel down in here, and this is where uh, Abraham is. He's buried um, Sarah here in Hebron. He goes back to Bethel. And he gets his servant, Eleazar, and he goes, I want you to go get my son a wife. Don't take him. You go get her. But you don't get a wife for him from any place around here. You're to go back up there. That's where he had left part of his family was up in Haran. So he's got to travel this whole distance to get way back up there. And it's going to take a little bit of time. Now, this map is, don't think of it as, you know, the United States. 
Um, but it is going to take a long time for Eleazar to get from here to there. Now, if you'll look with me on page three. At the top of the page, we're going to pick up in Genesis 24, and we're going to pick up in verse 62. <laughs> it says, Now Isaac had returned from Ber Loah Roah and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil, covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So if... <clears throat> pull up the next map, will you, this last one here? I think it's the last one. Here's where it says, Isaac returned from Bier Loha Roah to dwell in the Negev. Don't misconstrue this as just being Beersheba. It's because it doesn't say he went to Beersheba where his father was. It says <clears throat> he was just dwelling out in the Negev. He's just living out there. <clears throat> uh, so he travels. Sarah's died, and he's ever, he knows about it, and he's been there, obviously, for the funeral. There's been some time that Eleazar has left Beersheba, had to pass Hebron, and to go get Isaac a wife. So another, once again, we have to be a little bit as a detective. How did Isaac know that the servant was coming back with a wife for him. How did he know that? Well, we're having to fill in the blanks a little bit, but if Isaac is in Hebron, Abraham is now back at Beersheba. He's buried his wife. He's got all this guilt and everything. She's died. He's older, and he's thinking, Okay, God told me that it's through Isaac that this blessing's going to come. Isaac's not living with me. He's not happy. Matter of fact, what we're going to see in these next stories is also a little bit telling. But Isaac's not real happy because his dad nearly killed him. Okay? His dad goes, but I got to get him a wife because this is the one that's going to bring the blessing to all the earth. So he tells his servant, go get him a wife. I think the servant stopped off in Hebron and said, hey, your dad's sending me to go get you a bride. This is where I'm going. 
And I think Isaac probably went, okay, whatever. And so he goes on up, uh, and then he comes back. And, it's, and evidently, by this time, because it says he's dwelling in the Negev, but it says, where does he take Rebekah? He takes Rebekah to his mother's tent. Where would that have been? In Hebron. Not in Beersheba, up in Hebron. So he's up there somewhere close to Hebron. It says he goes out in the field meditating. Maybe he's calculating going, you know, he's been gone long enough. You know, they ought to be coming back pretty soon. Maybe the angel, maybe God is inspiring him to go on out there. Um, and they, they see each other. Rebecca goes, who's that? The servant goes, it's my master. She covers her face again. The servant, Eliezer, goes to Isaac and goes, hey, this is what I did. And Isaac goes, well, and then I guess it must be God. He goes and he takes her... <clears throat> And he has her as his wife. And it says, but this is something else that's really telling. It says, and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This really impacted him. That his mother's death, I think it's more than he was like a mother's boy. I don't think that was so much what it was. I think it's because he was the focal point of the stress that drove his parents apart. And that maybe even caused her death because she just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, I find all that fascinating. There's a few more things we need to look at here because it, it continues to get interesting. If you go to Genesis 25, it says, Abraham took himself another wife. <laughs> yeah whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Uh, Jokshan fathered Sheba, Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, uh, Litushim, uh, Limimim. The sons of Medan were Eph, uh, Epha, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. How's that for trying to pronounce those names? All these were the children of Keturah. So it says, he goes, he marries again, and he has a bunch of kids again. Then in verse 5, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts. So he gave them gifts. He gave them something but he gave the bulk of his wealth, land, anything that was his to Isaac. Then it says, And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward toward the east country. So he knows his time's getting short. <clears throat> he bequeaths everything to Isaac. And all of his other sons, he kind of gives them something, but then he says, Y'all get out of town. It's time for y'all to leave. You got to go, go do your own thing. Verse 7 says, These are the days and the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Wow. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael. 
his sons buried him. Anybody else go, interesting. Isaac and Ishmael bury him. In the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. So where is he, mar- where is he buried? He's buried with Sarah. It crushed Abraham what happened. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled where? (laughs) Here. He's not even living in the town where his dad lived. He's not going to live up in the town where his mother was. He's like, no, I I, I need to get separate from all that stuff. I'm going to live down here in Bear Lora. Here's what's fascinating. I kind of highlighted it and drew a line from it. You might want to do something like that. Evidently, Isaac and Ishmael, they didn't have a problem with each other. Why would they? Why would they? God blesses Ishmael, and then we're going to see this here again as this continues. He blesses Ishmael. He said he would do it, and he did do it. <clears throat> Isaac and Ishmael, they evidently didn't have a problem with each other, and they worked together to bury Abraham. And I want you to notice that it only lists Isaac and Ishmael out of all of Abraham's sons that bury him. And something else that's also actually Fascinating. Throughout all this story we've been reading through these whatever, six now plus chapters, where's Ishmael been? Right? Evidently, he was told, I'm guessing it was probably Isaac. Why would I even say that? Well, because when you read, and we're going to get to it in a second, here's where Isaac's living, and that's not on this map. But in this land of Shur, it's just outside of Egypt. He's way down here in the southern part of Israel in this area where Ishmael is basically pitching his tent and his descendants living. He's, it's, it's down here because his, wife, his mother uh, gets him a wife from where? Egypt. So they're really not that far apart, and it wouldn't be that unheard of uh, for some whatever 50 years later, uh, I didn't calculate the number. I'm sure I'm off on that. But anyhow, a number of years later uh, that Isaac gets in touch with Ishmael and say, hey, dad died. Let's go bury him. Where do you think we need to bury him? With the one woman that he dearly loved, Sarah. And so they do that. I wanted you to see, because I backtracked a little bit here, in, verse, in chapter 25, 16, and 18, it says, These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. Anybody else want to go, wow. Twelve princes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled in uh, Havilah, 
to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. I wanted you to see some things here in Genesis 17, 20, because this goes back to these promises that God said about Ishmael. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Pretty cool, huh? In 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 21, it says, And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So here's what I want you to see in this. God blesses Ishmael and calls him into being a powerful, large nation. Actually, he uses the number 12, 12 sons, 12 tribes, 12 princes, just like what he's going to do here in a little bit with Jacob, whom he changes his name to Israel, who births the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. He does this with Ishmael. We should say, no problem. That's not even an issue, right? God said he would bless him and blessed him into a great nation. What's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. But... God has a prophetic vision for Israel. I don't know what that is. Oh, Eric, okay, sorry. <laughs> that, I usually don't get distracted, but that did it. Uh, he, had, he blesses Ishmael into this large nation, even though Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah trying to answer a problem that they thought God had that he didn't have. And God goes, no problem. It's okay. They're just people. People created in God's image, right? If, they're, if we're human, if we're still human, right? We're created in the image of God. We have the markers of God on our DNA. <clears throat> so he says, I'm going to bless Ishmael into being this great nation, even 12 princes, and that's great, but I have a prophetic vision with Israel, and I'm going to bless Israel. But all of Israel, all of the Ishmaelites, and every individual is going to have to map out their own walk of faith with me. Everybody's going to have to do it. You cannot depend on your dad, your wife, your husband, your pastor, or anybody else to spoon-feed you your faith with God and walk that out. It has to become yours. You have to walk this out. Why is it that Sarah got so upset that now she doesn't even live with Abraham? She's not even living with him. She dies apart from him. There's all this other stuff going on. We're having to read between the lines a little bit, but it's obvious that there's something not right, right? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out something is not adding up, and God gave us a clue in his very word as to kind of what happened. So why would that, ha why would that be the case? Well, when you think back on the life of Sarah and the life of Isaac, it's not that hard. 
Who was it that decided I'm leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, Haran, and I'm going to follow God? Abraham. Now, God told Abraham and Sarah, look, you're going to have a child. And Abraham did laugh. But then later, Sarah really laughed. And Sarah goes, man, God has taken my ridicule laughter and turned it into laughter of joy. Now everybody's going to laugh with me. But what we don't see in these stories is this great faith of Sarah. She's Abraham's wife. And we actually see her saying, this isn't working. Take Hagar, my handmaid, and have a child with that. And Abram goes, okay. And then she does. And then Sarah starts acting like a jerk. And then she comes to Abraham. Look what's going on. And Abraham's look, like, are you kidding me? I did what you told me to do. And now you're mad at me. What do you want me to do about it? He goes, it's your servant. This was your idea. You deal with it. We can kind of see some stuff going on with Sarah that's not quite, you know, copacetic, if you want to say it. You know, it's just like there's some things here not quite adding up. Uh, we don't see this incredible walk of faith with her and really trusting God. Then you got Isaac. Well, Isaac is in this story, and he's trusting his dad. He's following his dad. And his dad's faith, in other words, we don't see a lot about Isaac until he's about to now come into the picture. There's been very little discussion about Isaac and what's been going on in his life. And he was the almost sacrifice, you know, he's a, if you will, kind of a type of Christ, but, but not really, really the lamb was. But, uh, and it happened there at Mount Moriah. So what's the deal with Isaac? Well, obviously, he's still not happy. He's living down here. As a matter of fact, he evidently has moved out before he has a wife, which also is a little bit telling. The families would typically stay together to help the whole family, and if he's the heir, he should be helping his dad take care of uh, their stuff that he's going to inherit. But he kind of goes, evidently, well, you know what, Dad? You're a little bit one brick short. I, you nearly killed me for crying out loud. And uh, nine having it. He's gone. Abram's not dead yet. Abraham's not dead yet. He's not married yet. He's down here. What's Isaac probably doing? Isaac is probably living his life in his faith based on his dad's faith. He's not having to walk it out yet. And then here's what's really fascinating about all these stories, and I know I'm going to get way ahead of myself. And I haven't spent a lot of time talking about this tonight, but Susan did. So Rebecca comes from where? Haran. Rebecca's a young lady, and what does she do? She trusts God, goes basically with a stranger to another land to marry a man she hasn't seen and marries him on sight. On sight. And don't give me this stuff, well, that was the culture, like she was pointing out. 
The parents even asked her, said, you sure you want to do this? Yeah, I'm good to go. Let's go. Let's go do this. Whoa. Who is it that God uses for Jacob, Yaakov, to get the blessing instead of Esau? Rebecca. My opinion. Rebecca is living out a life of faith that Sarah should have been living. And God inspires Abraham, go get another woman from up here because I'm going to use her to make sure that the blessing goes to the right child. And that's what happens later. Once again, each one of us as individuals have to map out. We have to own. We have to establish our own walk of faith. Isaac and Ishmael, they have to set their own course, and they do. Um, And everybody that came after them, they have to set their own course, and they do. And it ends up being Rebecca that ends up making sure, if you will, even though it's through dishonesty and deception, but the promise and the blessing goes to the right person. Turn the page with me. I want you to see some other things here. Has any of that that we've already talked about in this Torah portion been new for anybody here? Like, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know any of that. I want to show you some other stuff that maybe you didn't know. This one's in your New Testament. You go to Matthew chapter 1, and it says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to read these first 17 verses because it is connected to Abraham and Isaac. But there's something in here that I want you to see. Verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Terah and Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Jashon. And Jashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed. Um, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoanah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconah and was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David 
were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Anybody ever read that before? I separated out on purpose, starting with verse 12, because this is the last section here where it says, um, uh, from the deportation to uh, to Babylon to the Christ was 14 generations. So you might want to take your pen, um, because I, I highlighted the names, but I want you to notice something here. So you can highlight or underline or circle every time where it says the father of. That'll help. And yeah, you're getting ahead of me. That's okay. You, I want you to count them because we have a problem. We have a big problem. Is the Bible the Word of God? Can we trust it? Yeah, we can trust it. Uh, sometimes there's a problem with our English translations. I want to show you something. So each time you see this, the father of, and then we'll count them. You might want to put a number by it or whatever if you're, some of you are already getting ahead of me. So it was the father of Shealtiel, that's one. The father of Zerubbabel, that's two. The father of Abiud, that would be, what, three. The father of Eliakim, four. The father of Azor, five. The father of Zadok, six. The father of Achim, seven. The father of Eliud, eight. The father of Eleazar, nine. Father of Mathan, ten. Father of Jacob, eleven. Father of Joseph, twelve. Says the husband of Mary, I underlined that for a reason. Joseph and Mary, according to this, are a couple. So that would be how many generations? No. How many generations? Is is that two separate generations or one? That would be one generation, so that's, how many is that? That would be 11, right? If you connect them, that's one generation. And then the next one of whom Jesus was born would be 12. Is that right? It's 13? Okay, Joseph is 12, and then Jesus would be 13. Okay. But what does it say in our Bible? Well, we've only got 12. Well, I want to explain something to you. In some of the uh, very ancient, or they're old, uh, manuscripts of the book of Hebrew, a book of Matthew in Hebrew, yeah, it doesn't say the husband of Mary. Or the way it's literally written is that Mary is actually the daughter of Joseph. They both have the same name. Fascinating, huh? So Joseph, Mary's dad, of whom Jesus was born, is called the Christ... And Matthew, a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews, is explaining, so there were 14 generations each time. 14 generations from Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian deportation, from Babylon to the Christ, 
14 generations, 14, 14, and 14. A lot of people see, we'll use this as <clears throat> proof that, well, you know, you got problems with your New Testament. It's not really inspired. And, uh, you know, your Christian faith, well, it's your Christian faith, but you're not really worshiping the right God. Folks, <clears throat> this is where I'm telling you again, I'm going to try to push us a little bit. You need to make sure that you are owning your faith. That means you're going to have to walk this out and you're going to have to trust God and trust what He says, period. There are going to be times when you'll run across something you're like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. Is Jesus God? Did He die on the cross for our sins? Was He raised on the third day? Not the second and a half day, the third day. We've been over all that. He was witnessed by many, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's going to come back and get us, right? So He's God. And God mapped all of this out because He's painting a picture, because He's trying to bring us all back underneath His reign and rule for the purpose of glorifying Him and His name. When you run across something that doesn't seem to add up, there's always a simple answer. And the simple answer, because I'm simple, is, well, either I don't understand what's being said here, or somebody didn't understand what they were really talking about when they tried to put it in English. Because watch this. What we are typically told, and what I was taught even in school, is that your New Testament was, was written completely in Greek. And then it got translated, uh, Greek and or sometimes Aramaic, which is close to Hebrew, but it's not. Uh, and then at times people would translate that, the Greek, into Hebrew. Once again, I'm real simple. I'm real, real simple. I try not to go too far out there because the limbs break and I get lost and I'm like, you know, I just, God, I got to keep this simple. I'm a simple guy. And I go, well, if that's the case in Matthew, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, then why is it telling us he cried out, Eli, Eli, Labak Samachthani? Why is he telling us he's crying this out in Hebrew? And then explaining to us what he was saying. You know what the real, what I think the real truth is that what's happened? I really believe that most of our New Testament Bible, most of it, I really believe, and this is my opinion, so you can take this and shelve it or whatever, because this is my opinion. I really believe that most of it was really, really originally written in Hebrew. They were Hebrew disciples following a, and I'll say it this way, a Jewish Messiah reaching out to other Jewish people in the diaspora explaining to them that the Messiah we've been waiting on showed up, died on the cross. We can now experience salvation and get remarried to our husband. To think that they would do that in Greek to me just kind of doesn't make sense. But what we're typically told is that that was the common language of the area. Do you realize that English is kind of almost the common language kind of in the world or a large part of the world? 
But for most people, it really is their second language, but they can speak English. I, did y'all enjoy having uh, Joel here last week? Some of us went out to eat with him, you know. Isn't that ridiculous to find out you're sitting next to somebody that's trilingual and they do it really, 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 really well? You know, uh, every, it just, you know, <clears throat> English, uh, Hebrew, and Spanish, like it just, you know, it's, it's nothing. And you go, that's just wrong, dude. That's just wrong. Um, but when, he, when he's in Israel, what's the language? Is Hebrew. Can they speak English? A lot of them over there can. Why? Everybody wants to speak English, and plus they want to speak English for all of us Christian tourists that come over there. All of them do. Um, So my opinion is that it was written in Hebrew, probably translated from that at times into Aramaic, and then over into Greek as it as the church continued to spread and move away from Palestine, Israel, after 70 AD. It was only 35 years after the death of the Messiah that that happens, and Rome says, we're done with you. So everybody's scattered. Now they're not there anymore, and they're in other places. You know, we're part of the North American Baptist Conference. Some of y'all might not realize we're Baptists. Yeah, we're, we're Baptists. Uh, We're part of the North American Baptist Conference. You know why that conference was created? It was created in North America and Canada uh, to reach the German-speaking community in this area. They all spoke German even while they were worshiping, and especially while they were worshiping, in their congregations in the 20th century Matter of fact, when you go to some of these old churches, this is in America, when you go to some of these older churches that have been there for a long time, they'll have it in English, but in a German script on the walls, you know, verses and stuff. They stopped speaking German only in their fellowships after World War II. (laughs) Yeah, for obvious reasons, right? For obvious reasons. But when they met together and they were worshiping and studying and everything, they spoke what? German in America. Why would we think that Israel 2,000 years ago would be any different? Could they speak Greek? Yeah. Was that their mother tongue? No. Why did they speak Greek? They had to. But when they were together, they would speak their mother tongue. Anybody know other people that are maybe from... Mexico or from wherever, Italians or whatever, when they're together, they, have, they more commonly will speak their native tongue. Why? Because that feels more normal. And there's a sense of bonding to your heritage. And we're going to tell people, but that's not really what Jesus spoke. And that's not what his disciples spoke. And that's not what they wrote in. So I'm telling you that to to try to explain something that people use this verse to tell you it's a problem. And then when people explain what I just explained to you, most theologians would pretty much nail me to the wall over what I just said. Just telling you. But it only makes, so you go, oh, so it was written in Greek and then the Bible has a problem and God doesn't know how to write a book. Then that's what you're telling me. Once again, I try to keep it simple. Instead of arguing around all this stuff and all the semantics and grammar, I'm like, 
So you're telling me that the English is right because it came from the Greek and the Greek said it was 14, but it named out 13. It's just wrong. Don't worry. Don't look at the guy behind the curtain. Just keep going. That's what you're telling me. Kind of like that the law doesn't apply anymore. Just don't look at the guy behind the curtain. Forget about all. Just look at the smoke and the mirrors and the noise and just keep going. It's okay. Jesus died on Friday, rose on Sunday. It's okay. I know he said three days, three nights. Don't look. You know what I'm saying? So this next one down in Acts 15, this is what's commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council when they were trying to decide, does someone have to convert to Judaism to get saved? So this is where James is like saying, okay, here's what we're, this is what we're coming up with. And James goes, Simeon, that's uh, Peter, uh, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. After everything we've studied, what do you think he's talking about right there? The bringing the kingdoms back and restoring the kingdom. And and it says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Why is he going to do this? Why is he in the process of restoring the kingdoms? He's doing all that so that all of mankind will have the opportunity to seek him. And that started 2,000 years ago when the faithful husband died on the cross for his unfaithful bride so that he could remarry her start the process of restoring the kingdom so that all mankind could seek him. And then look what it says. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says, I'm going to say it, Yahovah, who makes these things known when? From of old. He's saying it again right here. These guys knew their Bible. They knew what they were talking about. They understood the prophecies and they said, this is the God we're serving that is telling us what? The end of the matter from the very beginning. That's what he just said right here. He's making these things known from of old. So... Yeshua is the main focal point of redemption. This isn't in your notes. I hope this really is inspired. Yeshua is is the main focal point of redemption for mankind through faith. He is the focal point for redemption for all of mankind through faith. Israel is the main prophetic focal point proving that Yahovah is the great Elohim. It's, it's all through your Bible. We, you know, we've read this, we've studied it. Now watch this. Because of replacement theology, we have developed the pre-trib rapture to prove that Yeshua is the Messiah. 
We came up with a theory about pre-trib rapture, the pre-trib rapture based on two thin New Testament verses. Thin New Testament verses. To come up with a theory that there's going to be this pre-trib rapture, and watch this, and that's going to prove to everybody that God is God, that Yeshua is the Messiah, that Israel messed up, and that those that didn't accept him are going to go, oh no, we were left behind. It's going to sell tons of books, and it's going to scare the you-know-what out of everybody. There's going to be planes crashing and all this stuff because that's the event that's going to prove to everybody that God is God. We had to come up with that because of replacement theology. The proof is, or the real issue is, Yeshua is the focal point for redemption, without a doubt. No doubt whatsoever. And that through him, all of mankind can seek God and find salvation. Fact, that's just, that's, that's it. But the main focal point of prophecy throughout your Bible is that God is going to do this miraculous thing with his people that he is going to call Israel. And he's told us all this stuff from the very beginning, from days of old, what's going to happen. So what can we glean from all of this? I just showed you at least two things, maybe three or four things that maybe you didn't notice in your Bible before. That even in this Jerusalem Council passage, James is referring to this fact that this is what God has been doing and doing through Yeshua, and He's been explaining this from, from ancient days, and that through Yeshua all mankind can seek God. We've also, I've also pointed out this supposedly grammatical problem in your Bible, but showed you how there's really a simple solution for it that was found in the Hebrew Bible of the book of Matthew. And then people are going to say, yeah, but that manuscript's from the 1300s. You can't trust that. And? So then your answer then is that the, the, the Greek is right and the Greek is wrong. That's, what, that's your answer. So here's what I want to challenge. And, the, and then there was the stuff about Isaac and his dad and Sarah, you know, and it just being really kind of dysfunctional. The reason why it was dysfunctional and the reason why people struggle and the reason why people will struggle in the days ahead is because they don't have this personal walk with God that no matter what you tell me, no matter what garbage you come up with, no matter what miracle I see, I know that I know that I know that Yeshua is the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all gods. He's the one that saved my soul. I know that I know that I know because the Holy Spirit has proven it to me, the Scriptures have proven it to me, He has witnessed this to me over and over and over again, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is doing this miracle thing, and everything is mapping out exactly the way He said, and when it doesn't fall the way the church has typically said, I refuse to get rattled. I will trust God even when my mind says, that doesn't work. I will trust him even when my mind says, no, something's wrong here. This is, no. I'm telling you that an apparition could happen right here. 
Sorry. An apparition could happen right here tonight. A, a full-blown, embodied demon could show up in my house and start telling me, all oh, that other stuff's not real. I'm telling you, I'm not going with it. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me. I will fall on the sword over the fact that Yeshua is the resurrected Messiah prophesied about by God through His Word. I will go on the sword over the fact that God is doing a miraculous thing with His people called Israel and that everything that is anti-Israel, anti-Semitic is actually out of the pit of hell. And that the God I serve is going to see me safely to my destination wherever that is. You cannot depend on my faith. She cannot depend on my faith. She cannot live on my faith and he cannot live on my faith. You have to do it on your own. You have to own it. If you don't own it, something's going to happen. And you're going to go, hmm, what do I do? Be it a death in the family or whatever. Demons show up and start telling everybody, we're aliens. We're the one that seeded the world. This is where it came from. And tons of people are going to go, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's right. Look at what they can do. I really do think that there was this ancient technology, and they really were able to make stones, tons of weight each, and they made them malleable somehow. And they molded them together, and then they got hard again. It's the only way you can explain some of the stuff, the way they've built things on this earth. Do your own research. You're going to look at this stuff and go, with all the technology we got, we can't come close to that. We cannot replicate that. And that stone is even too big to even move around. And you look at some of this stuff and go, how did they scoop that stuff out of the stone? There's no markings on it. How do they mush it together? It's multi-sided and it fits. You can't get paper between it. And it's been there over 3,000 years. We can't stack brick that tight. How do they do that? What if somebody shows up and say, well, this is how it does. This is how it happens. And look, and they start doing whatever. And all of a sudden they get this and they just mush it together. This is how we did it. We did that. And everybody goes, must be God. You guys must be God. I guess we were wrong. Folks, this is why the scripture says that the, the, the deception that's coming is going to be so strong that if possible, even the elect themselves will fall for it. That means us. That means if you don't own your own faith, if you're not walking it out, you could see something, watch this, a move of God, and you could be in the middle of it, Laying on the altar, looking at your dad. And after it's over, go, I'm out of here. You're an idiot. You nearly killed me. You killed my mom. I ain't living with you. I'm done with this. But God can still use you. But watch this. What are you going to miss out on?
And what he went through is nothing compared to what's coming. It will rattle your faith. It will shake you to your core. And if, you don't, if you're not walking it out on your own, you could be just like Sarah, just like Isaac. I'd rather be like Abraham. I'd rather be like Rebecca. Amen? God is God. There's not a problem with your Bible. When you leave, do you need to leave here and go, there's not, I'm, there's not a problem with your Bible. It's going to lead you to Yeshua. It's going to lead you to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But guess what? Imperfect people were trying to translate it from one language into another language. And there was a lot of stuff that was lost way back there. And even those in the New Testament that were writing this stuff down and then trying to translate it, they weren't watching it as much as like the scribes would that would go, no, that's the wrong way to write that letter. Burn it and start over. The apostles, when they wrote the letters, I'm sure they weren't thinking, oh, this is Scripture. They were writing a letter to a problem church trying to figure out how to walk this out. So he said, you need to do this and this and this and this and this. There were other letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Did you know that? Not just two. He refers to it. There's some that we don't have. Why? I don't know. <laughs> so there's some things that just aren't there. So don't get so caught up in that. And if you run across something, you go, well, it just doesn't make sense. You need to go, but I'm trusting God. I'm going to trust God. And I'm not going to let anything rattle my face. Nothing but I'm going to trust God. Does that make sense? God is God. He is God. And He loves you. And He's trying to bring us into a relationship with you, with Him. Uh, and He's trying to prove that He is God. But I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your wife, your husband, your kids. Your kids can't. You can't leave it, live it through your parents. You're going to have to... Walk this out yourself. You're going to have to decide now. I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to walk with Yeshua even if I have to walk alone. Even if I have to walk alone. And I think of Abraham. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He did exactly what God told him to do. And his family ended up hating him for it. The promised son left him over it. And late in his life, he's not even living with his son. The wife that he loves dies. And he knows that he knows that he knows. This is where he's living. This is where his son's living. And that's where his wife died. And he's got all this stuff. Maybe he's trying to fill the void with a, another wife and more kids. But he can't turn his back on his whole lifetime of walking with God and all the miracles God did. And he goes, no matter how hard I try, this boy, this man, is where the promise is coming from. They don't understand. She didn't understand. 
Eleazar, go get him a bride. Go get him a bride. God will take care of it. God will move. He'll speak to her. He'll use camels. And a man that I was going to have as my heir be the servant to get the bride for the heir. Unquestioning, unquestioning it. And through all our understanding of what happened, this is where Isaac comes and lives. Abraham's up there. And for a number of years still, he lives there apart from his son. But when he dies, the two boys from the beginning are now grown men and they come and bury him. You might walk with God in your own family and not understand. You're still going to have to walk with Him. You're going to have to walk with Him. You're going to have to own it. Yourself. Yourself.